1: uh, ask them questions maybe they haven't been asked before and get some really interesting insights on what they're doing and how that can help you and your family, you know, your health, uh, your life, etc. So today uh, we have Kevin Outterson. Uh He is a JD. He, he has, a, I guess, a law degree, but he's also a professor at Boston University, a scholar in health and disability law. We're going to be talking about the uh, role of bacteria in viral pandemics, um, especially probably in light of uh, COVID-19. And, um, yeah, so that's what we're talking about. So, Professor, thanks for coming. How are you doing?
2: I'm uh, doing great. I'm indoors and trying to keep all my appropriate social distance.
1: Okay. Very good. Well, um, you know, one thing that I've uh, I've realized is, and it's no fault of their own, but some people confuse bacteria and viruses. Um, can you talk about that just very briefly? You know, the differences, I know there are huge differences, and then we'll get into specifically what you're working on.
2: Yeah, people do get this confused, if if you have a common cold, probably what you have is a virus. And uh, generally, an antibiotic won't do anything good for you because uh, they kill bacteria, not viruses, you know, an antiviral for the virus. And uh, even worse, um, it's not just that it's worthless for you, but taking an antibiotic when you have a cold could wipe out all of the uh, healthy, friendly uh, bacteria in your gut and uh, actually harm you at the end of the day, so... You need to know exactly what it is that's hurting you and uh, have the drug that's targeted, you know, for what it is that's giving you a trouble.
1: Yeah, and I've heard until recently, until very recently, um, figuring out what bacteria or virus was affecting you was a really slow process. And so I guess doctors, clinicians would give you broad-spectrum antibiotics without even knowing really what was going on because it, it was just a time lag and people either demand some kind of medicine or they were acutely sick and something needed to be done quickly. Is that right?
2: Absolutely. And medicine calls that empiric therapy, which is uh, giving somebody uh, a drug, you know, antibiotic or an antiviral based on their best clinical guess without having anything back in the microbiology lab yet as to what it is actually that's hurting the person. And you mentioned, you know, COVID coronavirus at the top. And, you know, today, almost everyone in the United States and in China that we have information on at this point, you know, here we are, we're we're talking today on March 27th, but as of now, most of the patients who are hospitalized with coronavirus are getting antibiotics, uh, not because the doctors, you know, are making a mistake, but because in addition to having the coronavirus, a lot of these hospitalized patients have other things too. Uh, They're getting secondary infections by other viruses and then also secondary infections with bacteria. And uh, so even with what's happening all across the country and around the world, uh, it's not a past tense. It's today that doctors are required, because they don't have enough diagnostics. We've heard this story with coronavirus uh, to give the exactly right targeted therapy uh, quickly enough. Uh, Every clinician they would love to have, you know, the Star Trek (laughs) tricorder device that uh, could tell them immediately what it is that the patient has and then they could give them something that was targeted.
1: Yeah, I didn't, you know, I didn't realize that. Hmm. Um, So since we have a microbiome, it's so pervasive and so necessary for our healthy functioning. What's that interaction look like? Do you think that the microbiome contributes to our overall immunity and when we're attacked by a virus, for instance, like the coronavirus, what kind of interaction goes on between our, you know, our normal microbes and the virus? Do you think there is an interaction and how so?
2: I'm really not the, the expert to answer that question. I, I think, um, but broadly speaking, uh, the microbiome is still a relatively uh, unknown field. There's so much that we need to know. It, it'd be like landing on a new planet and thinking it was you know, bereft of life, but then finding out there's actually a complex ecosystem. And so, uh, you know, looking at our hands or, or our mouth or, you know, inside of our bodies, um, we are constantly learning more about the complexity of the ecosystem uh, within the thing that we call people, you know, humans. Uh, it's actually more of a of a complex ecosystem than we ever thought. And so, any time that you, you know, perturb or, or put a shock to that system, you might have. Unanticipated results, both positive and negative. Um, so I'll leave it at that. You'll uh, we'll need a natural microbiome expert to say something more specific.
1: Yeah, no problem. What what is your role, especially with the current uh, pandemic? What what's your focus right now?
2: Uh, for the past 15 years, I've become, I guess, increasingly uh, obsessed. I think is the right word professionally in my research uh, on the way that. Uh, the market for antibiotics is is upside down. Um, I've been working at that for a decade and a half, uh, originally trying to understand why it was that uh, patents weren't uh, incentivizing uh, antibiotics the same way that they worked great, uh, or some people might say too well uh, for many other high-priced drugs in the the system. And uh, that work uh, was, was academic in orientation. And four years ago at the uh, the US government put out a call for um, someone to create a, a new way to you know, support the small companies that are doing this amazing research. Um, I applied. Uh, I, I you know, collaborated with Wellcome Trust, which is one of the world's largest charities uh, based in London, uh, to apply for this US government grant in Diet, which is the thing I lead today, the nonprofit uh, Carbex. Uh, this is a, kind of like an academic dream and a nightmare. It's like a, you've had all these ideas that you thought about and wrote about for years on how things should be fixed. Well, here's a, uh, a half billion dollars in five years. Uh, we'd like you to see go, you know, we'd like you to try and do that. And so that's the challenge that we accepted. And that's what Carvex has been hammering away at now for, uh, for three and a half years, almost four years.
1: How do you narrow the scope so you can be effective? Are there certain conditions you're working on or certain populations of people in certain countries? Like, what's your focus?
2: Yeah, the coronavirus was not our focus. We are exclusively bacteria. And uh, we look at the bacteria that the U.S. Uh, CDC and the World Health Organization, they both put out lists of the bacteria that, that each of them thinks are the biggest risk to human health on the planet. And as you would imagine, uh, the lists are substantially overlapping. Uh, there's a lot of things that are on both lists. And so anything that's on one of those two lists, it's fair game uh, for Carbex to to find early research and to try to move it forward to the point where it's actually being tested uh, significantly in people.
1: So who's on the top of that list? Which bacteria would we know the names?
2: Uh, you know, people would, would know them. Uh, you might ask me the back would be an example. This is one that became better known to Americans when
1: uh, yeah.
2: veterans coming back uh, from, from Iraq and Afghanistan, who had been uh, injured in, in shrapnel or you know, improvised uh, explosive devices, IDs. Uh, sometimes they would, uh, many times they would have infections that would come along with that because there's a lot of, you know, the dirt and the metal and, and the rocks that uh, that were embedded in such an explosive, uh, terrifying event, uh, you know, brought with it uh, things that would infect the wound. And uh, the U.S. government was seeing, Department of Defense was seeing a lot of uh, of uh, asanated coming back uh, as a result of that. Now, this is not the sort of thing that the average American working in their back garden is, is is going to encounter. Um, but it became a larger threat because of that. It's also a threat that now circulates um, in many hospitals in the United States. So broadly speaking, the, the highest concern for CarVx will be those bacteria that uh, you might call superbugs, but the bacteria uh, that are the biggest problems for hospital infection control uh, experts uh, with their most critically uh, ill patients in the hospital which is why this is also important for coronavirus or for COVID. You know, the way that you get these superbugs is that you have a compromised immune system and you spend time in a hospital or a hospital ICU. And especially if you have mechanical ventilation, ventilation your lungs are failing and you have to put the tube down your throat and use a ventilator to, to, to help you breathe, which is exactly what is happening to the sickest people. Uh, With coronavirus, you know, they're in the hospital ICU, they're ventilated, and uh, they are more vulnerable than almost anyone uh, to these sorts of bacterial infections uh, that that can kill people.
1: You know, what's weird is I just realized when people think of viruses, they think of infection. When people think of bacteria, I don't think they ever think of infection. They think like, okay, circumstances or environment cause someone to have a bacterial infection or problem. But I don't think anyone ever talks about uh, bacteria that can spread either, I guess, I guess just due to conditions, but do they ever spread from person to person through contact? Or is that just a rare event or not on anyone's radar?
2: Uh, they certainly spread uh, through contact. I mean, there's a, you know, E. coli bacteria would be an example of one that people are well aware that there's there's times in which you can't swim at the beach, maybe in the summer, because there was a sewage release or something. That's a bacteria, and the concern is that people swimming would would you know get it. Uh, Salmonella, which sometimes infects uh, food products like chicken and occasionally milk and whatnot. That's a bacteria. You know, it's a foodborne bacteria, and certainly there's outstanding uh, data showing how these hospital-based superbugs spread. You know, they can actually track it. Uh, genomically, you know, they can uh, you know sequence the genome of, of a patient, and then sequence the genomes of four or five other patients who also had the same type of bacteria, and then trace the lineage and actually understand whether it was, you know, were these five patients did they each bring it into the hospital, or did they did they transmit it to each other in the hospital? Uh, so it is transmissible, but most bacteria you know, our body uh, has really dealt with them for a long time. And most healthy immune systems uh, can appropriately respond. Uh, but whenever we do something that that kind of disrupts our normal body, that's when we're more vulnerable. So um, anyone having cancer treatment, you know, they suppress the immune system. Anyone having a transplant, you suppress the immune system. Uh, anytime you cut the skin or do something invasive. So, um, a cesarean section for childbirth or a, a knee or a hip implant you know for somebody who's getting older and the their knees have given out all those things uh, elevate the risk of of a bacterial infection even if we don't you know see many of them uh, in the ordinary course just uh, as younger healthier people without these you know life events that would make you vulnerable
1: so yeah i have a I've actually read a a report from the CDC that talked about hospital conditions. And I guess they had said the drains in hospitals, the sinks, the P traps and toilets and things like that. Um, you know, you have a mixture of medication going down there and bacteria hanging out in there, too. And that's like a big area where uh, resistance occurs. And the bacteria then sometimes get aerosolized out of the drains and, and toilets and reinfect. I don't know if you've run across that or not or... If, other oh yeah, it, conditions
2: that are more amenable. Yeah, this this is a the number one safety feature in in a patient room is a toilet lid um, because if you close the lid, then when that flush happens, especially if you're in a you know a sort of some, you know sometimes the flush at an at a, in a institution will be more aggressive and fast, whereas at home it might just be your regular old tank and it it still gurgles but it's not quite as uh, of a thrust of water. Uh, without that lid closed down, uh, you just sprayed droplets and sometimes quite small droplets uh, and and they fill the air and and there's awesome and terrifying studies in which they use uh you know, high speed photography and, and special lighting uh, to catch and try to track how long those droplets remain in the air when you when you flush a toilet with the lid uh, with the lid up. So that's why it's important to know that, uh, you know, bacteria, if you're sick with something, whether it's bacterial or viral, you know, many cases it, it's excreted through your normal bodily functions. And uh, and so if you wanted to leave a gift for the next person to use the bathroom, a very dangerous gift, uh, you flush the toilet without the lid put down. Now, there's a lot of places in the United States that the toilets don't actually have lids. Most universities, many hospitals, no lid. It's a simple expensive safety feature that until these studies were done recently uh, people hadn't thought about it correctly but you are right also about the drains um, you know and there's, there's some simple fixes to that as well but you know just the just the next six inches into a drain you know from the sink uh, in in a patient room can, can be have all sorts of things microbes uh, growing in it the something called the biofilm which is a structure that bacteria build on which to grow, uh, you can think of it as a, as a slime sort of thing that, that bacteria will, uh, will, you know, it, it's better suited for, their, for them as an environment. It helps them to stay there as well. And when they tested what's in the, the sink drains, at just average American hospitals, not nasty places, but good hospitals, uh, it was shocking. And it uh, changes the way that people think about how they need to clean a room. Uh, if there's contamination by a bacteria or a virus.
1: Well, I'm thinking now, especially in the current pandemic about airport bathrooms and any public restroom. I know they're not used as much now. People are supposed to stay home, but I mean, they really need to be really completely redone. You know, I'm imagining your typical airport bathroom. The ventilation is not great. The toilets are flushing constantly, especially with automatic flushers. So right. it's with not just one chance. Right, without lids and the hand drying has gone much more predominantly to air dryers which blows stuff all over the the room um so i would think now uh, public restrooms they really need to be redone in light of all this because they're probably huge sources of uh contamination and issues
2: yeah i don't disagree i'm not an expert on you know bathroom transmission but uh, you can wash your hands all you want but uh, if, if it's in the air and you breathe it in your mouth uh, because there's suspended droplets and washing your hands isn't going to help. So, yeah, you know, public bathrooms in many settings, um, but but also, you know, the private bathrooms. So, you know, in institutions that where there's a bathroom that is only one person at a time, but, but people share it, you know, like an office setting or something. Um, it, it essentially means that if one person gets something that is candy aerosol, you uh, uh, by the bathroom, then everyone who goes in that bathroom that day, you know, could be exposed to it. And, uh, this is how colds circulate. You know, the reason why most of us get one or two or three colds every, uh, every winter is that we've picked up the virus from somebody in some setting, somebody sneezed on something and we touched it and then picked up a, you know, a pretzel and put that in our mouth. And we got enough virus to, to, to get a dose that was viable to to give us a, a cold. You know, that, that's how that happens. But it's one thing when it's a seasonal cold, it's another one when it's the seasonal influenza. And uh, it's a whole nother story when it's uh, SARS 2, you know, the COVID 19.
1: So, again, what's the current thinking in the organizations that you work for? Like, what? So, they have certain bacteria that they're targeting that appear to be really bad actors. And then what about, again, like we've been discussing just now, methods of transmission. Have they identified linchpins? You know, for instance, would it be good policy for, you know, now or not now, for people when they use the bathroom to wear a mask when they use the bathroom, even if they only use it then? Is that a particularly hot spot of transmission? Or are there other practices that wouldn't be invasive, but that would help really slow the spread of, you know, certain pathogens?
2: No, I'm not, I'm not an epidemiologist or an expert in these sort of transmission things. You should li- listen very carefully uh, to the to the most scientific advice that you can get right now in the United States on how to protect yourself. And uh, I, I'm at home, and uh, you know, and we're very careful at home, and uh, and we go out as little as possible only when necessary and maintain social distancing as much as possible. So I wouldn't dream of using a you know, uh, a toilet outside of the house right now during COVID, right? You stay home, you, know, you listen, oh, right. listen to the public health yeah. professionals. But uh, your, your other part of the question was, you know, what do we do? You know, Carvex is a, you know, we're an accelerator. We're, we're designed to find novel technology that applies to bacteria, bacterial threats and do something about it <laughs> because, you know, I mean, as of today, you know, March, you uh, know, late March, <laughs> I don't know when this will air, but as of today, 1,200 Americans have died of of, uh, of COVID-19. Of course, that number will go up. Um, but uh, as of today, you know, each year in the United States, 33,000 die from drug-resistant bacteria, right? So, you know, there are multiple problems going on here. And uh, we are finding that a lot of the people that are dying from COVID-19 also have, you know, bacterial and pneumonia secondary infections. So we, we need to do both, we need to do all of the above and uh, Carvex is here to, to focus on the bacterial side. There's a lot of money right now from Congress and many other settings, other countries trying to look for cures and diagnostics and prevention vaccines against coronavirus. Uh, we you know, can only hope that um, for great success in all three of those categories.
1: Okay, any, any big ideas that are, you know, being put forth right now in your organization that you think have promise that you can talk about?
2: Yeah, the thing I'm most excited about at ParvX is the entirely new approaches. You know, we've had some, many antibiotics that um, over the years from just uh, the current research system in the U.S. and the world, uh, we're very good at producing you know the fourth or fifth or tenth version of a drug. You know, so another fluoroquinolone or or another cephalosporin or another, uh, you know, you know, drug like a penicillin and, and whatnot. What's harder to do? It's just harder is to create an entirely new class of antibiotic, something that that's never been used in people before. It has a very different chemical structure, attacks the bacteria in an entirely novel way, because the resistance. We need these completely novel approaches. Um, I was born in 1962. Um, that is the date in which the last new class of antibiotics against the, the toughest type of bacteria, the gram negatives, the last new class that was approved by the FDA, it was discovered in 1962. So, my entire lifetime. Within Carbex, we have more than a dozen projects. Uh, you know, research teams, companies, um, each of them have, has a new class uh, against gram-negatives. Now, it's just really difficult. Most of them will fail, and they know that. Uh, but if only one, or, or, you know, we could really celebrate a two, if a couple of these make it to FDA approval, it's the most significant innovation um, in this area in my entire lifetime. So it's important to to swing for the fences for home runs, uh, to get entirely new approaches against bacteria because uh, their power to adapt and to resist is uh, is remarkable. And so we can't just continue to do the same thing we've done in the past and think that it's going to yield a different or better result.
1: Well, in the spirit of that, are you looking into phage therapy? You know, bacteriophages.
2: Yeah, absolutely. um, We're in the process of evaluating uh, a number of of phage companies. We invited at an open round in which we accepted applications from anywhere in the world for what we call non-traditional antibacterial therapies. These would be uh, things that have never been approved by the FDA before, so entirely novel approaches. Um, So not even a new type of antibiotic, but something completely different. So bacteriophage is actually a virus that that attacks bacteria. Um, so it's using viruses against bacteria. And uh, the really exceedingly clever part of it is that uh, when they find, when, when these bacteria, they just find the right bacteria, they're very targeted. They don't kill every bacteria, just the, the specific ones. So so it doesn't, has the potential to harm your microbiome a lot less and just kill the thing that you're worried about. Um, it, it it lands on that on the bacteria it injects genetic material inside. It hijacks the machinery of the bacteria to produce, you know, many, many copies of the bacteriophage itself. And then it lyses; it breaks the the bacteria cell open, killing it. But then, in the process of killing it, releasing, you know, multitudes of new phages right in the spot where the first phage found the first bacteria. So, um. You know, it's a, it's a remarkable, you know, potential, uh, and uh, we've got many cases in the U.S., dozens of cases of people receiving uh, phage therapy in the past couple of years on uh, compassionate use or experimental basis uh, with encouragement. But uh, what we need now is a, a fully uh, understood, scientifically rigorous uh, process, and multiple companies are moving forward, and, and Carvex is evaluating. Which of those that we plan to support?
1: What's the, uh, I mean, if, if the FDA is the big barrier, what's their position? Are they amenable to these alternative therapies or are they yeah. harder on them and more discriminatory versus other types of drugs out there?
2: FDA is not the big barrier. It, science is the big barrier. Why, why would we want to put load your body with viruses, <laughs> you know, unless we were sure that they were safe? They're not going to attack you and that they're, that they're effective, that they're going to kill the, the, the bacteria that, that's causing the trouble. So, you know, it's not the FDA is the problem. The FDA has actually been remarkable in, in the way that they've uh, listened to the companies and, and educated themselves and, and tried to be up to speed in this area. Uh, it's just science. You know, we, we can't just put random things in people and hope it works. Um, do the double-blind, placebo-controlled, if possible, uh, clinical trials because you want to know that you're not hurting people and that you're actually helping them, right? Especially when you're putting something like a virus inside of people.
1: Um, well, right. I know FDA has their process, and I'm glad that they're um, you know very accommodating. I know that you know you're not just going to give someone anything, and they have their process, but their process is long and and onerous, and probably rightly so. I just wonder what their position is with these kind of therapies. Is there any difference uh, in their know, position or no?
2: So I don't know if you've read the, the book, uh, The Perfect Predator. It's about, you know, you know, a, a patient who who was dying of Acinetobacter and and his wife, who was also a, a PhD scientist, was able to, to collect uh, companies who were doing bacteriophage research and and uh, to get it into him. And, and Tom survived as a result of, of the phage therapy. Uh, with FDA approval, so the FDA has allowed the emergency use of pages in uh, in many cases, dozens of cases, uh, and showing remarkable flexibility. Uh, but uh, those were people that are on death's door. Many of them made remarkable turnarounds, and and those anecdotal stories, because that's what they are. They're not it's not pure science. It's anecdote. Uh, was enough to launch uh, multiple companies that then went out and raised money so that they could do a proper scientific approach, as opposed to, you know, helping somebody who was on death's door. And uh, so the companies that have been involved that are involved today, uh, many of them have experience in this field because the FDA showed the flexibility to allow them to try it on on willing patients um, who were close to death.
1: Well, that's great. That's excellent. So, uh, for Carbex, um, anything you can talk about that you sense is uh, is coming soon. That's maybe in clinical trials already, or that uh, what's what's the first things you think they're going to come out of the consortium and when?
2: We, we we do three things. We do vaccines and other prevention. Uh, we do diagnostics and then therapeutics things like antibiotics and phage therapy. Um, you know, I think that. Um, all three are important. Um, you know, the vaccine is is what's going to eventually help the world recover from coronavirus. And so, a vaccine against um, the types of, of bacteria that 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 run rampant in nursing homes, or for patients that are about to be hospitalized, maybe somebody with a voluntary, you know, outpatient procedure, a vaccine in those settings would be would be remarkable. Would be really helpful. Um, diagnostics. I've already talked about the fact that. You know, we don't give doctors and, and other clinicians enough information. Uh, they wish that they knew exactly what it was that was hurting the patient, um, and as quickly as possible. Um, and it's been a struggle uh, to to get something that's fast, accurate, inexpensive. You know, you know, can can be done as close to the patient as possible, um, and can both identify what it is that's hurting the patient and what drug would be necessary to, uh, to resolve it. So you, you want to know both the, the name of the pathogen, but, but also whether it's resistant to antibiotics and therefore which drug should be used. Um, that's, a, that's a tall order, but I'm telling you, whoever, whoever figures that out uh, deserves a Nobel Prize in medicine because it will greatly accelerate the correct and effective treatment uh, for millions of patients around the world.
1: Well, very good. Well, what's the best way for people to find out more about Carbex and the companies that are, uh, you know, that are working with it within it?
2: Uh, Carbex uh, Carb-X.org, and uh, on our website you'll see who our funders are the, the governments and charities who fund us, as well as uh, the companies that we support. And you can click on, on those company logos and get a sense of what type of project. Uh, they're working on. We, um, we kind of, you know, I, I want to say that, um, you know, it's interesting to watch the coronavirus response and to see how many billions and now trillions of dollars are, are being poured into, uh, into this response. Viruses are like that sometimes, you know, if you look at the last several U.S. government, you know, emergency responses, well, it's been, um, this coronavirus and, and then, uh, Zika, um, for a time, and then ebola and and then also the the original SARS um, and and all of these appeared and and because they're they're viral they 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 grow and spread rapidly and and it scares people and appropriately so and uh, then we roll out billions of dollars and and uh, in investment and but we don 't actually invest in the long term public health infrastructure as much as we should because we should just know that. You know, we, we can't name what the next thing will be, uh, but we should be ready for, for whatever it is, uh, whatever the name of the next virus is after after COVID-19 sars two. Um, do. But bacteria is a completely different story. This is like the slow-moving train wreck. You now, we've been tracking for years the growth of drug-resistant bacteria in hospitals and in the community, Uh, and it it continues to grow in the number of people it kills. CDC estimates 33,000 Americans last year uh, from drug-resistant bacterial infections. Globally, the the number is over 700,000. These are big numbers, but it it doesn't happen in a flashy TV-worthy people with face masks and jumpsuits sort of time. And so it doesn't get the, the appropriate level of, of attention and, uh, and funding that, that it should. And uh, so, you know, I, I'm not taking anything away from SARS, you know, COVID, what we're dealing with right now. All the responses are appropriate and then some. Uh, this is a very serious condition. But I'm just saying there's also another quieter, slower-moving train wreck, which is uh, antibiotic resistance, drug-resistant infections. And we yeah, should definitely. also be paying some attention to that.
1: Yep. Makes sense. Okay. Well, very good. Um, Kevin, I appreciate you coming on the podcast and you know, the work you're doing is going to have a tremendous influence on everyone and, and hopefully their health positively. So thank you for being here. grateful to have the time to talk with you.
0: You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.